This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org. As you may know by now, March 19th is a personally momentous day for me. It marks the publication of my first book, Doing Justice. Writing it has been the hardest thing I've ever done, harder than any case I've ever tried or any case I've ever seen. For as long as I can remember, I've wanted to understand how justice is accomplished, what makes it thrive, how it dies. My book is built on stories. There are tales of failure, uncertainty, and immense challenge, where often there is no perfectly right answer. Justice is not math. The tales grow out of jolting stories of courage and heroism on the part of so many unsung heroes whose determination to do the right thing has inspired me to my core. There are stories about terrorists, mob hitmen, billion-dollar fraudsters, corrupt politicians, and even a so-called cannibal cop. The book, I should say, is not just for lawyers. It's for everyone. I try to address questions that perplex all of us. It's about finding the right approach, the right mental model, especially in this time where the rule of law seems turned on its head. The success of a book often depends on early sales. That's why I keep asking you to pre-order, because it really matters. So if you haven't already, order your copy, also available as an audiobook or ebook, at doingjusticebook.com. That's doingjusticebook.com. And if you're in New York on March 19th, there are just a very few tickets left to see a live taping of Stay Tuned at NYU's Skirball Theater, where I'll be interviewed about the book by CBS's Biana Golodriga. Every ticket comes with a signed copy of Doing Justice. Head to cafe.com slash book for more information. And thanks again for all of your support. From Cafe, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Trust, I think, is to democracy what fear is to autocracy. It's the really important glue that keeps our systems functioning. That's not a snap one moment democracy's broken It's an erosion. It's a sort of termites in the floorboards. That's Ed Luce. He's the U.S. national editor of the Financial Times and the author of the book, The Retreat of Western Liberalism. I speak with him about the new socialism, the power of political theater, and the assaults on liberal democracy in the U.S. and abroad. That's coming up. Stay tuned. So here I am sitting in the studio like I am every Wednesday. It's about 1230 on March 13th. And we took a break during my answering some of your questions to see what was going to happen in the case of the sentencing of Paul Manafort before D.C. District Court Judge Amy Berman Jackson, which took a long time. She took a break in the middle of sentencing, which is something you don't normally see. And so I haven't had a chance to review the transcript and look at all the things that happened in court today. 
But I have a few quick reactions. So first, what did Judge Jackson do? And it may be confusing to people who don't understand how the charts work and don't understand the difference between concurrent and consecutive time. So recall that Judge Ellis imposed a sentence of 47 months, it's almost four years, on Paul Manafort for his conviction on multiple counts in the Virginia case. So that's 47 months. And lots of people have been criticizing that as a low sentence. I'm among them. I don't think it should have been 19 and a half years like the guidelines suggested and didn't expect that. But 47 months seemed low and lots of people were anticipating that Judge Amy Berman Jackson would in some way correct that injustice and take into consideration the light sentence. I speculated about that myself. However, it should come as no surprise that right off the bat, close to the beginning of the sentencing proceeding, Judge Jackson, who clearly is a human being who has eyes and ears and hears the pundits talking, said correctly that it is not her job to review or revisit uh, or rectify in some way some other judge's sentence in some other separate case, even if it's with respect to the same defendant. That's an absolutely correct statement and intent. I think a lot of people speculate that in the real world, whether it's subconscious or not, if there was a huge miscarriage in one case, the succeeding judge in the few circumstances in which this happens might take that into account. Judge Jackson wants you all to know that that's not proper and she didn't do so. So what did she do? Remember, there were two counts in the D.C. case, both conspiracy counts, both with statutory maximum sentences possible of five years. So the most that Judge Jackson could do was give Paul Manafort five years in the first count, five years in the second count. And then the question would be whether they run concurrent to the Virginia sentence or consecutive to the Virginia sentence. In one case, concurrent means that there's no extra jail time. Consecutive means that you pile it on top of whatever he got in Virginia. So with respect to the first conspiracy, which included allegations of conspiracy to engage in money laundering, tax evasion, and failure to file various documents, she gave him the statutory maximum, 60 months, five years. Of that 60 months, she said, because of overlapping facts and underlying conduct between the Virginia case and the D.C. case, 30 of those months, so half of that sentence, would run concurrent to what was imposed in Virginia. That means, with respect to that first count, 30 months would run consecutive. That's two and a half years on top of the 47 months that he got in the Virginia case. Are you with me so far? Okay. Now on count two, Judge Jackson said that the witness tampering conspiracy was serious, but in total imposed a 13-month prison sentence on that count. And that, she said, because it had no bearing on the conduct in the other case, should rightly run consecutively. So you have 30 months of consecutive on count one, the 13 months consecutive on count two, that's a total of 43 additional months. So you take the 47 from Judge Ellis, you add the 43 from Judge Jackson, and she has essentially doubled the sentence from just under four years to about seven and a half years. So overall, I don't know what the pundits are going to say, and I imagine, given the high guidelines range on both of these cases, that lots and lots of folks will say this is a miscarriage. It's a gross under-punishment of Paul Manafort. I agree that it seems low, given how intransigent he was, given the government's view that he's basically a recidivist. I had predicted some weeks ago that the conduct was serious enough that Paul Manafort would likely get high single digits or low double digits, and I think that would have been more fair than the sentence. But seven and a half years for this conduct is not nothing. And for a man who's 69 years old, I don't have sympathy for his conduct, but judges do take into account physical infirmity and age 
and seven and a half years is a significant sentence, even if you believe as I do, it's low. Now, if Judge Jackson had been presiding over the Virginia case, maybe the sentence would have been higher. But as she said, she wasn't taking the other case into account. A couple other notable points from the sentence. One is that Paul Manafort apologized in his speech before the court in this case and not in the prior case, and that's notable. I'm not sure why the difference. Maybe in the first case he was convicted at trial and so wanted to maintain some aura of innocence. I don't really get it. And in this case, he chose to plead guilty and he was seeking a reduction in his sentence on the basis of acceptance of responsibility. And it's hard to look like you're repentant and remorseful and have accepted responsibility if you don't do the bare minimum, which every defendant does, which is apologize for your conduct. So that's a distinction between the two cases, but I thought an interesting one. The second point is an argument made by Kevin Downing, the lawyer for Paul Manafort, which I thought was silly, if not outrageous. And he said in court to the judge, thinking this was a, a viable argument for leniency, quote, if not for a short stint as a campaign manager in a presidential election, I don't think we'd be here today, close quote. Now, I suppose to a certain kind of base follower of the president and people who attack the Justice Department, this idea that you got caught up because you had a connection to the president might be some kind of fair argument. To my mind, it's ludicrous and silly and not persuasive at all. Lots and lots of people commit crimes and get away with it because for whatever reason, they don't come, they don't come across the desk or the radar of law enforcement. That does not mean when they finally run out of luck and when justice finally catches up with them, they get a buy. That's not how it works. Lots of people come in front of law enforcement for various reasons of bad luck. I think the other way to look at it is this is a guy who was really, really lucky for a really long time. And he had the benefit of freedom while committing crime after crime after crime, pocketing money to the tune of millions of dollars that was rightfully not his. And at this point, I don't know why there's any sympathy for the fact that because of some bad luck and some poor choices, when there was scrutiny brought to bear on other people, he got caught up in it. That's how it works. That's the breaks. And it was, I think, a bad argument. And the judge wasn't buying it. Final point, and I may have more points next week when I digest more. The judge made it a point to say that she's not rendering any judgment about collusion because the question of collusion and the issue of collusion wasn't presented in the case. Judge Jackson was very specific. She said the question of whether or not there was a conspiracy or collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia is not before the court, period. And she said period for emphasis. So, as she says, logically, the case cannot be an indictment or an endorsement of the special counsel. It just wasn't presented. These are separate crimes. Nobody's saying that they were part of collusion. And maybe it was an attempt, in part, to anticipate what I expect Donald Trump may have already said by now, and that is that this sentence and the statements by the judge exonerate him, which is also not true. You'll recall that after the first sentencing by Judge Ellis of Paul Manafort, Donald Trump said something like, the judge exonerated me and said there was no collusion. He said no such thing. Judge Jackson was more clear on it, saying that those questions and issues weren't before the court. It's neither incriminating on the issue of collusion, nor is it exonerating. It's just silent. None of this may matter, of course, because it is always possible, as people have speculated, that the president, who has said he feels bad for Paul Manafort, thinks Paul Manafort was treated unfairly, may be pardoned. So this may or may not be the end of the Manafort story, given the possibility of a pardon, but let's all stay tuned. So folks, literally after I concluded my comments about the Manafort sentencing and said, 
you know, there could be a pardon and stay tuned. We were about to leave the studio and there was breaking news that I saw in the New York Times that my former colleague in law enforcement, Cyrus Vance, the Manhattan DA, has, as some people predicted he would, filed charges, 16 in all, felony counts, against Paul Manafort in state court in New York. I haven't had a chance to look at the charging documents, and we're about to be kicked out of the studio, but it appears that there are accounts alleging uh, bank fraud, mortgage fraud, and falsification of business records. There will be the inevitable question of whether or not double jeopardy prevents these charges from going forward. A quick glance at an article with the caveat that I haven't read the underlying indictment, but a quick glance at the facts in the article suggests that the Manhattan DA, as you might expect, would be very careful to charge conduct that wasn't a part of what Manafort was convicted of and pled guilty to in the two federal jurisdictions we've been talking about on the show. Obviously, what everyone will note on this is that if Paul Manafort is tried on these charges or pleads guilty to these charges, and there's not a double jeopardy problem, President Donald Trump will not have any authority to pardon him. The only person who would is Andrew Cuomo, who I think will not. This question comes from Twitter user Paul1023A. Sounds like a statute. Uh, He's asking a question about a topic that's on the tip of everyone's tongue this week. At Preet Bharara, can you talk about the college admissions scam this week? Hashtag AskPreet, hashtag stay tuned. Yeah, I'm permitted to talk about it, and I will talk about it. And I will tell you, uh, out of parochial interest, that some of the emails I've gotten about this scandal and this huge criminal takedown have been from people who wondered why this case is being prosecuted by the U.S. Attorney for the District of Massachusetts in Boston rather than by my old office, SDNY. And I say to them, you know, SDNY gets its share of important, groundbreaking, interesting cases, but they don't get all of them. <laughs> so. Uh, Apologies to SDNY and kudos to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston. So I share the view of a lot of people. I have college-bound kids myself and understand the pressure and stress that parents and children feel about trying to get into a school that they think will open doors for them. I'm quite frankly surprised, not completely shocked, but rather surprised that people who are otherwise so privileged and, and otherwise have access to so much financial means decided to engage in a brazen fraud. I'm, I'm a little bit surprised about the scale of it. You see in the indictment that there are people who were charged and part of the scheme in Massachusetts, in California, in Maryland, in many other states. You have the head coaches of various sports at elite universities, including soccer coaches and sailing coaches and tennis coaches, who all out of greed decided to subvert the, the process, such as it is, which is not perfectly meritocratic, but it certainly shouldn't be subject to such craven bribery schemes. And like many of you, I'm amazed to see how many folks were willing to suspend their professional duty to either take other people's tests for them or alter people's SAT tests or ACT tests. And on some occasions, pretend that someone was a champion athlete when the student applicant never even played the sport. So it's kind of disgusting, kind of horrifying, and kind of upsetting. And it resonates, I think, with so many people because we're in a time when there's a lot of reasonable and decent discussion about how privileged people have many advantages. And here you have a class of privileged people who didn't find their own privilege to be enough and decided to break the law, and I think will pay a heavy price. 
What's also interesting to me from a legal perspective, as a former law enforcement officer, is the use of RICO, the Racketeering Act. That's not something you see often in any kind of case, even in mob cases. Many, many cases are brought without using RICO and using standard criminal statutes. It's hard to put together a RICO case. You have to describe an enterprise. You have to identify underlying predicate crimes. In this case, among them were wire fraud, mail fraud, money laundering, and I think a few other crimes. But it shows, in some ways, how seriously the prosecutors have taken this case, um, how seriously they undertook the investigation, how long-term it was, using a lot of the tools that we have been talking about over the last number of months, cooperating witness, body wires, and the like. So they, they kind of went at this as you might go after a mafia enterprise. And though it doesn't rise to the level of that kind of activity, there's no violence, these are white-collar crimes, But I think it goes to the core of what we think about in America when it comes to meritocracy and when it comes to people abusing their privilege. And I look forward to seeing how the case unfolds. It looks to me like there may be many other cases coming down the pike if other people decide to cooperate as well. So I don't think we're done with this. I think the universities, many of them, have a lot to answer for in how this was allowed to happen under their noses. Some unanswered questions as far as, as I can tell, having not seen everything but read some of the material, is how you end up showing up at a school in part on the strength of your athletic prowess in a particular sport, and then never play that sport. And by the way, one of the most galling things, and and it matters when crimes are galling, not just that they meet the elements of a statute that's on the books, that has an impact on how prosecutors think about the case. It has an impact on how a jury, if it has to consider the guilt or innocence of somebody, has on the case, and it will have an impact on how a judge thinks about the severity of the crime and how much punishment should be imposed for that crime. And so one of the most calling things is that some of these folks, for the purposes of paying the bribes that totaled into the hundreds of thousands, and in some cases, I think, uh, seven figures, millions of dollars, to get their children into elite institutions, uh, laundered them through a charity set up by the cooperating witness. So they not only paid the bribe, but also presumably got a tax write-off for that bribe. That's kind of gross and that will matter. I should add something important, that all the people who have been charged by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston are presumed innocent. I have yet to make my way through the several hundred pages of the agent's affidavit in support of the criminal charges, but from what I can see, and I think it's appropriate to say this, from what I can see, given the documentation, given the cooperating witness, given the recordings that they have of people speaking in their own voices on tape, the case looks pretty strong, at least against a lot of folks, and I suspect you'll see a lot of folks spending some time in prison. Yes, this is Rob Ballard from Lomexa, Kansas. I understand the Justice Department has a policy against indicting a sitting president, but is there a constitutional prohibition that would preempt the state from filing and pursuing criminal charges against Trump right now as he sits as president? Thanks. Hey, Rob. Thanks for your question. So as we've been discussing over and over and over again, like everyone else in the country, on the question of whether the President of the United States can be prosecuted while in office, you're correct. There's a Department of Justice memorandum that states that he cannot be. And some people think that's, you know, a bad policy. Some people think it's a decent policy. And some people have mixed feelings about it. So with respect to a state, obviously the states are not subject to policy guidance that are put forward by the Justice Department. They are independent. We have something called federalism in this country. And so presumably, a state attorney general or a sitting district attorney somewhere, if he or she believes they have proof beyond a reasonable doubt, 
that the sitting president has committed a crime, I suppose they could take the extraordinary step of charging a sitting president. I should note, however, that I think that move would be challenged by the executive, challenged by the president and his lawyers as being unconstitutional. And even though there's no guidance that binds the local prosecutors, there would be a fight over whether or not the Constitution prohibits such a thing. The OLC opinion is not binding. It purports to be, at least on its face, the Justice Department's interpretation of a prohibition in the Constitution. Now, lots of scholars say there's no clear prohibition on charging a sitting president, but that's the basis for the opinion on the Constitution. So you would end up having a constitutional argument. You don't know which way it would go. Presumably, it would go all the way up to the Supreme Court. And there are various folks, given the balance on the Supreme Court, that you can't predict how it would go, but it might be favorable to the president. And the Supreme Court, for obvious reasons, because it doesn't happen and arise very often, if ever, has never addressed this specific question. So it's an open question as far as the Supreme Court goes. I think that any ordinary local prosecutor would think long and hard, even if not bound by the Justice Department guidelines, about taking such an extraordinary step. This question comes from Twitter user Andrew Morton, AJBMort82, who asks, At Preet Bharara, did you really, at 19 minutes, 2 seconds into the Insider podcast, use the good English phrase, bollocksed up? Hashtag ask Preet. Uh, indeed I did. And by the way, if you like that, just wait till you hear this week's interview with English gentleman Ed Luce. My guest this week is Edward Luce. He's the U.S. national editor of the Financial Times and the author of three books, including most recently, The Retreat of Western Liberalism. We talk about the appeal of strong men with simple messages, the dream of a political Hail Mary, and whether Britain or the U.S. is in worse shape, plus his take on what 2020 might bring. That's coming up. Stay tuned. There are a lot of ways to describe fear, but there's one way to protect your home. Simply Safe, the home security system that knows it feels good to fear less. Simply Safe is an award-winning 24/7 security system that protects your home through it all, whether it's a blizzard, power outage, or burglary. Wirecutter and The Verge call it the best home security system. It was PC Magazine's Reader's Choice and the two-time winner of CNET Editor's Choice. Simply Safe has no contract and no hidden fees. Their prices are always fair and honest. Try Simply Safe today with free shipping, free returns, and a 60-day risk-free trial because fear has no place in the home. Order now and have your home protected within a week at simplysafe.com slash preet. That's simplysafe.com slash preet. Be sure to use our link at simplysafe.com slash preet so they know you heard about it from listening to Stay Tuned at simplysafe.com slash preet. One of the most important things we can do every day, aside from listening to this podcast, is brush our teeth. But how many of us do it properly? Hold the brush at a 45-degree angle, scrub clockwise, continue for two minutes. Enter Quip, the better electric toothbrush. Dentists and designers created Quip with your smile in mind. It makes brushing more simple, affordable, and fun. It has a built-in two-minute timer and pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides. The best way to get a full and even clean. Maybe you have sensitive teeth. Quip is for you, too. With sensitive sonic vibrations, 
Quip is gentle on your gums. Plus, Quip can send you refills every three months to keep your breath and your mouth fresh. That's why I love my Quip. No wonder they're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals and one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash preet right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash preet. Ed Luce, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Preet. So we have, we have a lot of things to talk about. You've written a lot of things. You're a keen observer of what's going on in the U.S. and the world, and you bring the perspective of somebody who's outside of the United States, so that's interesting to talk about. Can we start with some basics? Because people throw around these terms, whether it's political candidates or pundits or academics. You, you wrote a book not too long ago called The Retreat of Western Liberalism, which we'll get into some of the themes of that. In your mind, what is Western liberalism? Because I think different people think different things when they hear that term. Um, and it's a very good question. Um, I certainly don't mean the Americans' use of the term liberal. I mean um, Western liberalism in the classical sense, a sense that would be more familiar to uh, the founding fathers and to the Locks and Montesquieu's who sort of built the intellectual framework for the liberal um, political model. And that is something that um, in time, but also I think in logic precedes the democratic model. It is about having an executive that is has some checks on it, whether that's in the, the British um, system with a constitutional monarchy or the American system with an elected presidency checked by a separate legislature. It's about having smaller Republican controls on the uh, on the power of government. It's about um, an independent judiciary. And it's about a government that does not derive power from divine right or some other mystical force, but from the consent of uh, of the people. And that's where it then becomes democratic over time. But it's, it's a separate word from liberalism. And so I very deliberately did not talk about the retreat of Western democracy because I think we're going through a period of illiberal democracy. It's about the retreat of the liberal part of it. But the criteria you set forth just now for what qualifies as Western liberalism, they're not so high. You know, an independent judiciary, I suppose an independent press, leaders who don't derive power from divine right, those are sort of bare minima, right? Don't we still have that in most places that used to have that? Um, we still have that. I think we have less of an understanding of how valuable it is, what we do have. And I think we do have a conflation in our mind that what the majority say is right is liberal democracy. That's the sum of it. It's majoritarian democracy. Uh, if you look at places uh, like Hungary, you know, where you've got Viktor Orban proudly um, calling himself an illiberal democrat, then you see that illiberalism is not consistent with democracy for that long. Eventually, democracy goes too. And it's very hard to make the case that you can have a free and fair election in Hungary. The United States has a much more robust and much, much, and I think it's, you know, by and large holding up under Donald Trump, a much more, more robust constitutional tradition. It's the longest unbroken one in history. And I'm, I'm a little bit um, less pessimistic about its durability. If Trump's reelected, of course, um, I, I might become more pessimistic. But, um, <laughs> you know. Will you write very dire columns then? 
Yes, I suspect, you know, um, in the the weird um the weird way of these things, it would be another boom time for media, but it would be it would be a very dire time for all other aspects of of society. Does the term Western liberalism only include nations in the West? For example, you know, I am from India, was born in India. I know you were a bureau chief in India for a period of time in South Asia. Is is India a model of Western liberalism or has it ever been? India is an extremely interesting example, and it's very telling. I'm glad you asked me about India. It's very telling that the largest democracy in the world, which is about to, you know, hold its next general election in April and May, you know, which by definition, every time it holds a general election is the largest democratic exercise in human history. It's very right, telling, right, right. you know, that um, India is excluded from the, the hand-wringing that we're all in some form or another um, indulging in about the future of liberal democracy because it is the largest, I would I would call it a secular plural democracy um, in the world. It's the largest democracy in the world, but it's it, I would I would call India's system secular pluralism rather than classical liberalism. But it shares many of the features, and it also shares some some of the problems besetting you know, namely a rising yen for a strongman, a, a demagogic media, increasingly demagogic me media that is afflicting us, you know, in other in other um, democracies. But it's the one thing in India clearly isn't is Western. Right. right. Um, and so, you know, I omit it for that reason. So sometimes people in this country bemoan the state of affairs. And you've talked about, as I've mentioned already in the title of your book, the retreat of Western liberalism. There are problems in lots of countries, and I, and I wonder if you keep score as between your your current home in the U.S. and uh, where you're from, the U.K., who's faring better on these terms these days? I tend to think that the British are in more trouble because Brexit is for keeps. And four years later, it's going to be very, very difficult for us to change our minds, uh, and therefore we're going to have to live with it. Right. Whereas Donald Trump is not for keeps. He might only have 18 months. Well, I mean, 20, 20 months or so left in, in office. Uh, as I said earlier to a previous question, if Trump is reelected, I will revisit um, that view. But the American convulsions happening in, in American society, as well as in American politics, are of extreme importance to the entire world. Britain can, you know, have a provincial conniption. It can walk off the chessboard, which essentially is what it has done. But the breakdown of British institutional norms is, I think, perhaps more dramatic than it is in the United States. I'll, I'll just give you one very sort of small anecdotal example. You know, on the day that Theresa May came back with her last minute compromise from Brussels to say, look, now can you vote for my Brexit plan? Her attorney general, the most senior legal official in Britain, um, was tweeted at by a very famous news anchor saying, we believe that your view is that this deal is no different from the one she went to Brussels with. And he replied 30 seconds later, bollocks. Mm -hmm. That's it. On Twitter, within 30 seconds, our most senior legal official, bollocks. Um, there's a sort of degradation. There's no real metric for this. There's a degradation. I need to interrupt you, Ed. I don't know if you're familiar with a gentleman named Donald J. Trump, who, who tweets <laughs> much, much worse than bollocks, I think. <laughs> he does. He does. Um, but but so, somehow, you know, it's just him. I mean, it, there, there are, of course, all kinds of really ghastly figures in, in the media. There are Tucker Carlson's and so forth and Ann Coulter's. But in Britain, it's normal in many roles. It's, it's normalized. Trump 
is, I hope, maybe I'm being too optimistic here, is sui generis. In Britain, this is um, typical behavior now. What would happen, um, I've always wondered this, if the President of the United States was subjected to, in Congress, what the Prime Minister uh, in the UK is subjected to from time to time by Parliament. Prime Minister's questions. Can you describe how that works and wh- how you think that would operate in America? This happens once a week, and the prime minister, um, you know, has to take any questions. It alternates. The speaker asks one, takes one question from the op- opposition bench- benches, and um, the next from the prime minister's own party, the Conservative Party. She has to be extremely well briefed. One of the best, sort of, um, one of the most accomplished British prime ministers, Harold Macmillan, even six, seven years into his prime ministership said he would physically vomit before each <laughs> <laughs> prime minister's right. question time. It, it, it's it's a very stressful episode. The American system is different. You know, there are presidents, I can imagine, who would relish it. Bill Clinton, I think, would have considered that to be a treat. Right. Maybe Kennedy, too. And maybe Kennedy would have, too. So, that you know, part of it is about the cut and thrust of, um, you know, what, whatever personality you've got. Um, I think Obama, in a slightly a slightly more thoughtful, slow-paced form would have relished it too because he was a, is an extremely learned um, and thoughtful man. Trump, you know, um, Trump would somehow find a way of turning it to his advantage. Well, it would be great theater. I mean, I guess my question is, not having watched too many sessions of Prime Minister's Questions, does it shed any light or is it mostly theater? You can get caught out. You know, there's a very much uh, a gotcha culture there, where if a prime minister gives the wrong answer or misleads the house, that is something that at least when normal British political rules were in operation could damage or even lead to a prime minister's downfall or or the resignation of a cabinet minister. But that no longer applies. I mean, there are all kinds of rules that used to apply, unwritten conventions rather than laws that, you know, that are therefore invisible, taken for granted until you lose them. And when you lose them, you realize what you've lost. And I suspect May could stand up and say all kinds of things nowadays that that are not true. In fact, I don't suspect. I know she's been doing this for the last two and a half years since she became prime minister. She has been misleading the house sort of ritually. And there are no real consequences. Are you allowed to say bollocks? It, it is bollocks. She talks bollocks regularly, <laughs> once a week, from the dispatch box, as they say. You know, I had this, once upon a time, I had this resolution to introduce a new word into my vocabulary from time to time, <laughs> and I, I'm going to introduce bollocks. I, I, do, I do have great fondness for the word omnishambolic. <laughs> omnishambolic, did it, strikes me as a, a That's too a many syllables. And, and yeah, it, doesn't, it doesn't sound as much like, um, like a curse. You're right. It sounds a little bit, <laughs> a little bit too pompous. <laughs> I still like the word. Can you explain something to all of us that I'm actually confused about and that we're all thinking about? And that is uh, many, many people talk about how democracy is broken. And some people think that is so because Donald Trump is the president. And some people think that is so because you have Brexit, which is problematic from the point of view of a lot of people. But I guess my question is, on what basis can you say democracy is broken? I guess in the U.S., you can say, well, the Electoral College is problematic and there's gerrymandering and there, there are all sorts of issues about voter suppression, sure. But overall, isn't it true that democratic institutions, by, by that I mean the voting processes and access to information and the free press and the free marketplace of ideas still exists to an you know, overwhelming extent, both in the US and the UK and all sorts of other places that are undergoing hardship, 
And that by definition, if you get Brexit, democracy is working. If you get Trump, you may not like the result, but a lot of people do, and democracy is working. So what do we mean when we say, when some people say that things are falling apart and not working? I don't think um, I don't think democracy is broken. That's not a phrase I, I would use. I think we're each very Tolstoyan, you know, and that we're uniquely unhappy in, in the way our political systems are functioning. And so you can get into particular causes and details in each country. But there are two there are two sort of things that are that are in common across the West, regardless of which democracy you look at. One, one is that there is this declining faith and trust in our institutions. And if you look at a graph in Italy, it doesn't look much different to one in the United States or in Britain or in France. German ones come from a higher level. There is higher trust there, but it's in the wrong direction. We're all going in the wrong direction, even Canada, for goodness sake. And trust, I think, is to democracy uh, what fear is to autocracy. I mean, it's a very, it's a the really important sort of glue that keeps our systems functioning. So there's been a decline and there continues to be a deep decline and therefore rise in cynicism in our institutions. That's not a, a snap one moment democracy's broken measure. It's an erosion. It's a sort of termites in the floorboards um, measure. But, but aren't some institutions uh, right to be mistrusted? I mean, in, in other words, what automatically renders institutions trustworthy? So it, it's not really that we're saying, I'm trying to diagnose the problem. It's not really that we're saying, well, there are these great institutions and people over time have become cynical about them. Isn't it more that, well, these institutions have failed folks and to some extent, legitimately, and in good faith, they have lost faith in those institutions and trust in those institutions as a matter of course. I think that's absolutely right. I, I mean, there, there are reasons for this this cynicism. I mean, if you look at another measure that we all share in common across the West, we are seeing declining earnings potential for large shares of our populations and rising inequality, the top sort of sections getting a greater and greater share of the economic pie. And, you know, that that's in turn feeds a cynicism about what is our secular religion, which is meritocracy, it's fairness, it's that, you know, to some degree, talent is what determines whether you can get ahead and hard work, and people don't believe that anymore. And when they're told that the system is fine and that growth is at this level and that you should be, you know, celebrating, they are rightly very, very skeptical about about what they're being told. And so I think there's a, definitely, there are objective explanations for why people are feeling sort of toxically mistrustful of institutions because those institutions aren't performing the way that um, their parents or maybe their elder siblings expected them to. How about one of the institutions that you're part of, the press? How is it performing? Well, we've got this sort of counterintuitive moment. You know, Trump is a little bit uh, like quantitative easing for journalism. You know, he's really sort of um, boosted asset prices, traffic, um, you know, has has risen, circulation has risen. I think that the demand for non-alternative facts has risen. You know, I think there's a sort of, to, to use a word my daughter uses, a wokeness about a lot of new readers, you know, that might not, not be there had Trump not been elected. There's a sort of shock to the system. So you've got this counterintuitive thing where the media are doing really well and we're all sort of taking some guilty pleasure in chronicling, you know, what is actually a very disturbing um, phenomenon, the phenomenon of the Trump presidency. So the media is in, in, in not bad health, how sustainable that is, you know, um, which is why I use the quantitative easing 
um, the quantitative easing analogy is another question. Let's say Mike Pence became president, something happened between now and impeachment or Amendment 25, whatever it might be. Pence, to extend the analogy, analogy would be like monetary normalization. You know, he just wouldn't drive, he wouldn't drive traffic in the same way. Um, but you're right. Media is doing okay in some measures. In others, it's really not. If you look at the number of journalists who are based uh, covering city halls, covering state legislatures, who are based, you know, in between the American coasts, they've been more than decimated. They're, they're a fraction of what they were. And that's where, you know, democracy in action affects most people. But is that a function of mistrust in institutions or a failure of democracy or pure business model for local journalism in the modern world? I think it's more about the business model. You know, I think that people are used to getting free stuff and they're not prepared to pay and advertisers can find other ways of reaching consumers. And the newspaper was the was the middleman, as it were, and before this technology enabled that. But it has consequences for democracy and holding power to account. It means there are fewer pe- fewer eyeballs on on the regulators and the politicians and other people who wield power. And that's and that's that's dangerous. I agree with that uh, more than you may appreciate. When I was U.S. attorney, we did a lot of work in public corruption, and some of those cases were spawned by local journalists who wrote about things that seemed fishy to them. And then we would investigate also, and the fewer such reporters that there are out there uh, who are intrepid and fearless and keeping a watch, the fewer opportunities to hold folks accountable. So I'm on I'm on board with with that analysis completely. Oh, that's that's a very good point. You said something. Um, well, you said many interesting things, but one thing that struck me is how you describe the problems we're facing today are different from some of the the crises that the country and the world have faced before. So you say that you know the problems today are not like Pearl Harbor uh, or Sputnik, or I imagine you might say 9-11, that you describe as unifying shocks that sort of galvanize bipartisan action and stir, and stir the system into decision. That's not what we have here. But my question is, if there were to come another sort of galvanizing shock, a terrorist attack or some other crisis, would we be unified again and cast away all these divisions we currently have? Or is there something about the current state of affairs that makes you worry about the next crisis in a different way than you might have before? The latter more. I mean, you mentioned in those list of shock events, sort of exogenous shocks that produced bipartisan action. You also mentioned 9-11. And 9-11 produced, I think, a disastrous response for which we're still paying. And and in some ways, you can see Trump as part of the price that we're paying. I think um, I think that the reaction to that shock is exactly what we should not be wishing for. I mean, so we should be careful what we wish for. And I do hear a lot of people, and I think that was, you know, part of the premise to your question, a lot of people are seeking some kind of forcing event to snap us back to our senses and, you know, ensure cross-aisle political action um, that can break through this horrible logjam, which is a very polite way of explaining, uh, describing American politics. So let's say Putin, you know, Putin observing our weaknesses, observing our readiness to get hysterical more quickly and to believe convenient explanations more readily and to do due diligence less thoroughly, which is very much the case nowadays uh, in the way we conduct our public debate. You know, let's say he managed to sort of arrange some kind of really 
horrific or chilling cyber attack, but without his signature on it sometime in 2020, you know, who would benefit from that? What kind of galvanizing action would that produce? I don't think it would be, you know, a Socratic or a Hamiltonian one. And at least I fear it wouldn't be. In terms of what's already beneath our nose, I do see a rather self-fulfilling tendency to demonize China as, okay, we need an external enemy. And we need something to unify us, uh, not just domestically, but, you know, across the Atlantic amongst allies. And we face a, you know, a challenge from China. And I do, I do sense that in the debate on both sides of the Atlantic, there is a tendency to use a language that Tom Cotton, Senator Cotton used the other day. He described China as an evil empire, which is, you know, it's potentially horribly self-fulfilling and completely misreads, you know, just just how organized and determined and indeed um, disruptive China wants to be, but might make it more likely to behave like that. May I go back and ask you about something you said a few minutes ago, distinguishing the reaction that the country had to 9-11 from the reaction to some other things. And I just want to make sure the listeners understand what you mean by saying that the reaction to 9-11 was the kind of thing that we don't want. Yes. Um, so that produced uh, two things. One was, you know, the, um, the the fairly draconian watering down of rights for, for many Americans and non-Americans after 9-11, the sort of dilution of habeas corpus rights here in the United States, which, you know, I think was terribly damaging, not just in terms of those whose rights have been abrogated, but also um, in terms of America's reputation globally, uh, the the probity of this model, the independent judicial model. And I think then, of course, the Iraq war and the Iraq war, um, 9-11 was the pretext for a war that, you know, had been very much an apple in the eye of, um, uh, of, of Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney and others. And that produced, depending on how you do your costs, anything between three to four to five trillion dollars of spending on a project that proved to be a shimmerer. Saddam Hussein did not have links with Al-Qaeda or indeed a nuclear-ready program on the basis of spreading democracy to the Middle East, which has not happened. Enormous damage, again, a, a great sort of windfall to China, too, which wasn't fighting uh, wars of choice, wasn't spending money, and wasn't being humiliated in, in the field, as America was for many years in Iraq. So that that's a perhaps exhibit A of how not to respond to a shock. Well, do you have any doubt, and I don't mean to sound dire here, that if something along those lines happened now, that the reaction with Donald Trump at the helm will be even worse in many ways? I know there's some people who disagree and don't agree with, fully with what you said about the reaction, but is there, is there any doubt that the reaction would be even more extreme this time around, given the state of play, given the state of rhetoric, and given how much hostility... Donald Trump displays for certain kinds of things. I think our threshold has fallen so low that you wouldn't need a 9-11 to produce that scary scenario. You'd need a San Bernardino for for a public outcry that Trump could reap and turn to his own political advantage with unforeseeable sort of foreign policy actions and consequences flowing for them. I, I think you know, I don't think Trump is itching for a war, but I think he's a fundamentally amoral person who will exploit to the extent he needs to, uh, whatever circumstances arise for his re-election. And so, as I say, all you'd need is a San Bernardino for that. Can we talk about a word that people like to talk about these days, especially as we're gearing up for the 2020 election? And it means lots of different things to lots of people. And maybe the battles are won and lost based on what people's perception of the word is. Uh, And you've written about it, socialism. 
when you observe America and you see the current political debates and you see the Trump folks lining up to demonize any Democrat who gets the nomination as a socialist, what do you think about that? I, I worry quite a lot about branding. You know, I don't think most Americans would call themselves a socialist. Um, I think it's no accident millennials are sort of more likely to call themselves socialists because they don't have the sort of memory. Um, you know, they weren't alive when uh, the Soviet version of socialism and the more extreme versions were were our ideological rivals during the Cold War. And so it's a sort of, it's a sanitized word for them. What I think Trump wants to do and is doing so in a fairly consistent, disciplined way, as are, you know, people like Mike Pompeo and Mike Pence and others, is linked Bernie Sanders, you know, ownership of the word socialist, democratic socialist with Maduro's Venezuela and Chavismo, that whole sort of broken um, model. When what Sanders means by it and what AOC means by it is something more akin to what we see in Denmark or Sweden uh, um, or perhaps Germany, which is a mixed economy system, you know, where, you know, the, there is public health provision, um, that there is universal health care. The, the, there is heavily subsidized access to higher education, better better models of um, social protection for people who fall on economic hard times, consistent with a red in tooth and claw, you know, competitive um, market economy. That is a million miles from Venezuela. But I fear the branding war is something Trump is very good at. He's not good at many things, but he's very good at branding people with nicknames, labels. He's yeah. He's good at campaigning. <laughs> When he called Jeb Bush low energy Bush, um, <laughs> low energy Jeb, that stuck immediately. Yeah, lying Ted Cruz. There's a certain, you know, there's a kernel of truth to some of his labels, which makes them more effective. Is the way to deal with that, if you're someone like Bernie Sanders or has different views, to engage in your own brand making and labeling? Or can you not win that fight? I would argue aggressively, you know, that there is corporate socialism. Um, for Trump's cronies, that there is a welfare socialism for um, bi the business lobbies. I would argue, I would fight back on that. But I wouldn't sort of, you know, brand everything you stand for as socialism. I don't think that getting into a war over a word has, a, particularly a word like this, has that much upside. Because for some people with, you know, historic memory, people over 45 maybe, the word socialism is pretty well sort of entrenched in their minds associated with the command administrative system of Stalinist Warsaw Pact regimes in which freedom did not exist. And, and it's just too, it's too much of a risk with the Venezuela and Cuba type examples so close to us in this hemisphere to risk that much over a word. The interesting thing, you and I are the same, around the same age, I believe. And I remember being a kid at the dinner table, and we had a certain kind of dinner table. My father was a practicing pediatrician, immigrant from India, the largest democracy in the world, who made his home with our family here in America, the, the oldest democracy in the world, and most effective and long-standing democracy, as you've mentioned. And I remember being lectured by my father, my brother and I both, on how terrible socialism was. I mean, he talked about communism also, but this was you know, the height of the Cold War. And he would say things like capitalism is good and competition is good. And, you know, that's how you get prosperity and that's how you incentivize people. And if people want to tax all my income, then I'm not going to be incentivized to make any money. And these were in the days when there was, you know, a higher marginal tax rate. And that sits with you. And so even, even though, you know, I was a young person and you were a young person then also, when people talk about the word 
socialism, it has a certain cachet in your in your brain. Yeah, and it's in its truest sense, socialism, you know, does derive, you know, whether you're a moderate socialist or um, a hardliner, does derive from a, a Marxian sort of common home, and. You know, I, I'm not sure it's the best idiom to use in the United States. The idiom I would go for would be one that has a, a deep and very American pedigree, which is, you know, that Theodore Roosevelt, that during the progressive era, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, championed, and that in some respects, Elizabeth Warren is trying to champion, which is we believe in genuine capitalism. We don't believe in capitalism for the insiders, for the connected, for the already rich, for in those days, the J.P. Morgans, Today, you know, maybe it's the Jamie Diamonds uh, or the Mark Zuckerbergs. We believe in a fair shake for everybody, um, little guy capitalism. And that, if that means breaking up monopolies because we believe in competition, uh, then so be it. But, you know, it is important to stress here that uh, there's a very good example that when you have a system with social protections, you can afford to let companies fail. And a really good example is Saab in Sweden. Sweden, with all these social protections, for sickness, for retirement and so forth, and for unemployment, um, could allow Saab, one of its national champions, to go bankrupt. And America could not allow um, the big three in Detroit to go bankrupt. And that's, that's, and that's because the collateral consequences to average people and workers is less in a country like that. It's too great. Just too great in America and, and, and much less, as you say, in Sweden. And that means Sweden could allow the market to take its course and competition to work. So it sounds like what you're saying in part is that people who have a view that spans the spectrum of, you know, how much you need regulation and how much you need income inequality to come down uh, and how much of a safety net you need that's paid for by taxpayer money. Again, it's on a spectrum and different people have different views, but everyone is somewhere on that spectrum, even people like Donald Trump, because there's such a thing as uh, socialism for corporations, corporate socialism. But in some ways, it sounds like what you're saying, that people who want to propose something different should not reject and whether or not they decide to embrace the word socialism or socialist, they should not reject out of hand completely the word capitalism because lots and lots of people have an affinity for it and believe, I think correctly, that in some ways there's been more wealth generated over the course of the last you know hundreds of years uh, and more people brought out of poverty, it's, I think it's a fact, based on open markets and the capitalist system in various countries in the world than through any other method or system. Is that fair? That That is fair. And, you know, you include China in that, which might be nominally communist, and it's certainly autocratic, but has used, um, you know, the discipline and the uh, ability to innovate of the free market and the, the private sector to, to produce higher growth rates and lift more people out of poverty. That, that's very true. But you choose your menu. There is nothing inconsistent with being in favor of capitalism and having a 70% tax rate on people who earn more than 10 million and having very steep inheritance taxes. We had that for a while during the time this country has been capitalist. Absolutely. And indeed, you know, on equalizing the, the, the income tax and capital gains rates. Uh, you know, there are, there are many, many ways to skin the cat. And I understand why people are reacting, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Well, let's talk about a figure who you mentioned. And I like the way you described the 29-year-old Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who has become a, you know, a very interesting figure and known far and wide after not having anyone know her name just a few months ago. And you have written, quote, the fact that a 29-year-old former bartender has gone from zero to ubiquitous abbreviation, AOC, in a few months tells us something about America's appetite for change. She is now the most influential figure in U.S. politics 
after Mr. Trump. Is that an exaggeration or do you stand by that, sir? You know, I think I, I would stand by that. Um, well, it was only two weeks ago or three weeks ago. Yes. So. Yeah, exactly. If I was repeating I hope you haven't abandoned your, your views that quickly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Give me, give me a, at least a quarter before I repudiate myself. I think I would stand by that. I think she's changed the weather. I mean, no pun intended in terms of what's considered acceptable to debate on the left and, and but also she, the But has boldness. she changed the climate? And not, the, not yet. And, you know, and I would quibble with her. I mean, there is another sort of analogy between her and Trump there, which is critics of her Green New Deal are taking it um, literally, um, uh, but not seriously. And um, supporters are, are taking it seriously, but not literally. And, uh, you know, you'd, you'd understand why if you support that, you wouldn't want to take it literally. What do you think accounts for someone like her becoming so quickly influential in a heartbeat it happened you know talk about america's appetite for change and whether that's good or bad i think partly um it's her facility i mean she's got an amazing talent for social media and for communicating directly with people and in a way you know again this is a trumpian thing that is plain talk in the case of trump it's generally plain lies but it's plain talk and she's not you know a dishonest or mendacious character she's got a sort of very refreshing Millennial um, sort of directness, I think that, you know, the primary in which she ejected uh, Congressman Crowley, you know, he was very much establishment. Um, and the fact that it happened in Brooklyn, you know, which is very much an incubator of a lot of what's modish and fashionable, that helped too. Um, She's from the Bronx. Uh, yes, sorry, um, but I, you're quite right. People here get Greece. very upset about those. I know, and that's and I <laughs> and I do repudiate myself within three seconds of that one. Um, but the fact that... You have a president who essentially rose through Twitter. It means other people can do it. And she she knows what virality is. Um, that's the sort of um, theater sort of criticism or summary of, of, of her rise. But I think her ideas also speak to a, a very, very strong sense in America that there is deep unfairness, that the Democratic Party has been sort of doing doing a dance with this unfairness, compromising with it. It's become timid and incrementalist and negotiates only with itself because the other side's never there in good faith. And that we need a Trumpian response to Trump. And, and, and that involves very bold, very big, very bold ideas. And she's just very good at it. When Elizabeth Warren did her you know, um, live social media sh video shoot from from a kitchen, and and you know, thanked her husband for coming. You know, <laughs> you realize you've you're either you're either you either have this naturally or you don't. And and if you don't have it naturally, don't try it. Yeah, no, I I, I agree with that. At home, don't do it at home. Do you think that, given how easy it is for someone like Donald Trump now to communicate directly with folks, and AOC and others? I mean, I think there's a lot of good there. You know, I'm I'm on Twitter. I'm not like one of one of those folks. But I communicate directly with, you know, more than a million people now, which is astonishing as a private citizen who has a podcast and a, and a teaching spot at NYU Law School. But does it, this, this um, you know, uh, even ground make the country more susceptible to the rise of a demagogue? Undoubtedly. It undoubtedly does. You know, we always wish for something that we don't have. And we used to desperately wish to get rid of the smoke filled rooms. I guess they would be vape filled nowadays. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that old model, the party decides, you know, tended to produce insiders. And, uh, you know, when you're a deeply cynical and mistrustful of politics, the last thing you want is an insider. So, you know, the smoke filled room is dead. And, you know, expertise is guilty until proven innocent. And experience 
is is something that counts against you and not for you. And all of this is supercharged and enabled by the nature of social media um, nowadays. So we are moving in a sort of tribune and the people direction where the leader communicates directly with the mystical people and is enabled to. And that sort of seems over-determined by the climate that we're living in is is we want a Hail Mary person to come along. It's, you know, most of the problems we face are pretty complicated and they're pretty, a lot of them are, a lot of them are tractable. They are soluble, but they require quite a lot of detail. And we could, you know, could get into some of those policy areas if you like, but this is an age where we've got this great demand for somebody who'll just do it for us and preferably somebody strong and somebody clear and somebody memorable. There's so much noise out there. There are so many different ways of reaching people. People are, you know, either so bombarded or so turned off that you've got to be even louder and even more demagogic to break through. Or you can be the quietest person in the country but have subpoena power and have been appointed special counsel and you can still be viewed as a savior by tens of millions of people if your name is is Robert Mueller. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, and people people are looking, people are very hungry and desperate for an individual, whether it's whether it's Mueller or Trump, or AOC or Beto O'Rourke or someone, to deliver them and the country from all its troubles. But it's not so easy as that. But it's not so easy as that. Um, I mean, you, <laughs> I, I would be the last person to predict in what form uh, Mueller's report will come out or how many reports there will be and how much will be redacted and how we'll ever, you know, see the full. I would be the last to. Um, but the the pressure on the guy, um, you know, um, must be just acute because he is seen as a savior. He can handle it. He eats a lot of spinach. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that you will revisit your view of how America is doing depending on whether or not Donald Trump gets reelected. Some people have brought this other point up. Michael Cohen, in his testimony before the House, said at the end that he has some feeling that Donald Trump may not want to leave power, even if he's not clearly reelected. Do you have that worry, or do you think that's an overstatement? I do have that worry. I mean, I tend to... You do? <laughs> I, I, tend to take him, I tend to take him seriously. Um, and, you know, I think that we had a way of reassuring ourselves after he won um, in 2016 that a lot of this was just, you know, for, for the campaign and that he, he would then sort of switch, he would pivot to being a more um, sober-minded um, president in office. And, and that's not been the case. I think his philosophy about um, how the world works um, you know, from the most granular level of how you treat humans, like basically we're all lying cheats and it's the bigger liar and the bigger cheat who wins. And that, and, you know, r that writ large for global foreign policy um, has been a consistent trait of his career and his character since, you know, he was a, started appearing on the, the pages of the New York Post 50 years ago. So I tend to take him seriously. And I think his prolonged um, sort of envy sessions for autocrats around the world is uh, is a genuine expression of what he feels about them, which is admiration um, and envy. Well, it must be because it doesn't serve him in any way, shape or form, right? I mean, it, it, what's odd about it is if it were just a game and he was trying to gain the favor of some constituents, I, I think his constituents have come to just respect and like whatever he does, but wouldn't have in the first instance <laughs> given a menu of choices, have said, hey, it'd be great if you express a lot of admiration, respect, and love for the great autocrats of the world, right? He, he brings them along. 
but it can't be part of an actual strategy to firm up his base, right? No, I don't think it is. I, I think it's sort of a reflection of how he treats and flatters and caters to Mohammed bin Salman, for example, or in a very different um, way to Kim Jong-un. I think that reflects his idea of how you do business. Um, is basically you get the other guy, the bad hombre, and you know, you just do the deal together. And, you, you know, flattery gets you everywhere. And I think he's too sort of wired, deeply wired in that mode that might work in the property development business. I don't know. It might work in a bankruptcy court. Maybe it gets you into bankruptcy. It maybe gets you into bankruptcy. <laughs> it does. And then later a different kind of bankruptcy. Is he a good deal maker? No. He's... Or, does his base think he's a good deal maker? Still, even though he's not by every outside measure? Uh, I don't think his base expect define deals the way we define deals. Um, yeah, I, I think there is something that scholars call negative partisanship uh, that you know has taken over American politics in in the last decade or two. I'd, I'd personally date date its origins to Newt Gingrich, uh, whereby your motive for being loyal to your party is that it can really humiliate the other one. It's an expression of your hatred for the other party, rather than your positive agenda for what kind of reform you think that party is going to produce in government. And in that respect, by that measure. Trump is delivering on his mandate. You know, he he provokes, he humiliates, he winds us up, he has us foaming at the mouth, he has Trump derangement syndrome, and that causes great, great schadenfreude and pleasure to his base. So I think the sort of core base hate liberals. They hate experts. They hate people who sort of do dull deals with foreigners. Um, and so, you know, what, what, what kind of deal is it that they wanted him to clinch? I think, I think he's clinching the kind of deal his most visceral supporters wanted him to clinch. So how do you evaluate the ever-growing 2020 Democratic field? Who's in good position? Who's not? Who you think will understand the way to both get the nomination and then be a, a good adversary against Donald Trump in 2020? You know, I would like to say that um, I admire um, Elizabeth Warren, and I do admire a lot of the work she's done on a lot of areas like um, um, anti-monopoly, um, like the wealth tax, which I think is a good idea, like revising, at least having a debate about the, what shareholder capitalism is for and what the regulatory system should require of it. There's all kinds of things um, that Elizabeth Warren is delving into that the other candidates are only dealing with much more lightly, lightly and in a slightly more sloganized form. I just don't think she's particularly beloved of people. Um, and I also think that Trump, um, you know, would relish the, the prospect. He, this is a successful, the Pocahontas branding is a successful one that she's actually sort of inadvertently helped him with. And so I think she would be a flawed candidate. Um, she's not even that popular in Massachusetts, her home state. How do you compare? How do you compare Senator Warren to Senator Bernie Sanders? I think Sanders has a far more far more avid and enthusiastic base, and that's shown in the money raising um, numbers. I also think you know he 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 deserves some credit for changing the conversation before AOC did. He did. He's the sort of grandfather of this change of conversation. And, you know, I applaud him for that. I do think he would make a hopeless presidential nominee. Um, and why, why is that? Um, I think that, you know, when you're talking about Medicare for all, which is roughly speaking, three trillion dollars a year, and the budget today is what, four and a half trillion dollars, you're talking about a 75% 
addition to the budget, you have got to go beyond the taxing of the rich, which is absolutely necessary. Don't get me wrong. And you've got to be straight with people and say it's going to involve broad based tax increases, which is fine. If you want something and want to pay for it, that's totally fine. And I, I'm biased towards universal health care. But he's not being accurate with the numbers. He's not being frank about the numbers. And I think Trump would have a field day with that. Are and people being accurate with the numbers when it comes to the Green New Deal? Um, well, there's been some stratospheric estimates of what it would cost. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, what, what, what will cost more, universal health care or the Green New Deal? The Green New Deal would cost a lot more, but it's because it's not just a Green New Deal. It's everything. It's also, you know, universal employment. It's um, universal basic income. It's it's a lot of things loaded into the Green New Deal. And, you know, one, one estimate has the sort of total lifetime cost of it at $93 trillion. But you'd be... Why can't we have Mexico pay for it? <laughs> yes, Mexico. That would be convenient. And maybe some people would believe it. I think maybe uh, Russia, Russia should pay for it. I'm I'm surprised that the Democratic candidates aren't just running on that platform. It costs too much? No. Believe me, Mexico will pay for it. And then ultimately, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to matter. There is something called modern monetary theory, which is, it is kind of the left's version of magical thinking. And it's caught on in some circles, but it's not the same as Trump saying Mexico will pay for it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little bit too abstruse, you know, to go viral. And, and, that, and that's a good thing. At least we, we could go on for a long time. Um, I'm getting the, the signal that they're going to throw us out of the studio. So thank you again for your time. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Hugely enjoyed it. Thanks, Preet. As I've said, next week is a big week for me. My book, Doing Justice, comes out on March 19th. I know I've talked about the book on the podcast before, often sharing the trials and tribulations of writing and speaking about the work in a personal way but also discussing some of the main themes that I wrestle with in the book. Today I'm sharing an excerpt from my audiobook, which I voiced myself. In this clip, I describe what I call the moment of truth, the verdict in a criminal case, what it feels like in the courtroom. To listen to the rest of the book, or get a copy in any format you prefer, head to doingjusticebook.com. And now, from Doing Justice. Here's how you know the moment of truth is at hand. The judge through the courtroom deputy or a clerk, sends word. There's a verdict. It is a sobering announcement, because judgment is near. If you're in the courtroom already, you stiffen and wait. If you're back at the office on a call, you hang up and make haste. If you're at lunch, you finish chewing what's in your mouth and rush out. People collect. Attorneys for the government, lawyers for the defense, courtroom personnel like the deputy and the assigned clerk, though typically all the clerks like to be ringside for the final decision. If it's a press-worthy case, reporters with small flip notebooks come into the gallery also, likely with conviction stories pre-written, given the odds. Oftentimes, the defense has supporters in force, spouse, kids, parents, siblings, friends, clergy, co-workers, neighbors. Other times, the accused and his lawyer sit alone at the defense table, without cheerleaders, feigning stoicism until the foreperson speaks. Typically, deputy U.S. Marshals will take up silent sentry against the wall. They are armed because violence, though rare, is always possible. Finally, there comes the boom of a deputy marshal's fist pounding three times on the door from inside the deliberation room. Jury entering. Everyone stands, 
As the jury files into the wood-paneled courtroom, now thick with anticipation, dread, and prayer. All eyes are fixed on the ordinary men and women who walk toward the jury box, a casual caravan of sweaters, jeans, slacks, flats, and sneakers. Mostly, their gazes are directed indifferently forward, as if riding an elevator. The stakeholders staring from the well see only tea leaves, not faces, straining to catch a hint of the looming judgment from a telltale glance or expression. Sometimes jurors are crying. Rarely are they jovial at this moment. The prosecutors, for their part, wear intentional poker faces. The first time I sat in the well, waiting for the foreperson to announce the verdict, my trial partner leaned in and whispered forcefully into my ear, Remember, no emotion, no reaction, no matter what. Acquittal or conviction, the poker face is a must. This is a matter of etiquette, and also, I think, a conspicuous show of respect and humility. You think you tried a good case, you believe the defendant is guilty, you don't know whether the jury bought it, whether the jury liked you. You run the reel of your best and worst moments, and you brace. I remember being astonished when the jury at my first trial convicted, and astonished again when the jury at my fifth trial acquitted. And astonished is an understatement for how I felt sitting in the courtroom for the verdict in our case against Al-Qaeda's Ahmed Gailani, the last man brought to America from Guantanamo Bay to face civilian trial. Charged with 285 counts, for the murder of 224 people in the horrific bombing of U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. He was acquitted by the jury of 284 counts, convicted only of count five, conspiracy to destroy property and buildings of the United States. Inexplicable to the point of absurdity. To this day, we have no logical explanation, except that some lopsided compromise must have been struck in the black box of a jury room. So, everyone waits nervously for judgment, by unanimous reckoning, to be pronounced not by the robe judge, but by an ordinary American, plucked from some local neighborhood, for this extraordinary service. Finally, the foreperson stands in the jury box, before a motionless courtroom, and speaks the verdict. And then it is done. Audio excerpted courtesy Penguin Random House Audio from Doing Justice, by me, Preet Bharara. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Edward Luce. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by Kat Aaron and the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Joel Lovell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. The executive producer at CAFE is Tamara Sepper, and the CAFE team is Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Stay Tuned is produced in association with Stitcher. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay Tuned. Simply Safe knows it's important to feel safe at home. That's why they developed a security system that always keeps working, even if the power goes down, if the Wi-Fi is out, 
or if a burglar tries to break your security keypad. Simply Safe has some of the fastest response times in the industry. They're ready to send help 24/7 if there's an emergency. Go to simplysafe.com/preet to learn more. That's simplysafe.com/preet.